So hello and welcome to BJA Education Podcast. My name is Riaz. I'm one of the trainee editors and today we are recording a podcast on our September edition, uh, Neck Trauma um, and a Surgical and an Anaesthetic Perspective. Um, we're very lucky to be joined by a anaesthetic trainee and a surgeon. Uh, I'm going to hand over to both of you to introduce yourself. Hi, thanks uh, Riaz. My name is Anthony Simons. I'm one of the uh, ENT head and neck surgeons at uh, Queen's Medical Centre. The bulk of my work is managing head and neck cancer, uh, but obviously we, we're a major trauma centre, so we do get lots of penetrating ambulant neck trauma uh, and also lots of uh, airway management also. So that's sort of my uh, my background, really. Uh, yeah, and hi, Riaz. Uh, thanks for inviting us both today. Uh, I'm a, my name is James Shulston. Um, I'm an SG7 trainee uh, in anaesthetics and intensive care in the East Midlands. Um, so first of all, I just wanted to um, for you to give me a little bit of a rundown, a bit of a background about neck trauma. What does it actually mean? You talk about two different types of neck injuries. So um, neck trauma is a bit of an umbrella term um, and there's uh, the, it can broadly be broken down into blunt and penetrating. We uh, don't cover in the article. There are other forms of neck trauma, particularly as uh, anaesthetists and, and uh, some ENT surgeons, sort of iatrogenic trauma. Um, but that, I think, has been covered in other articles. So really, our um, article was focused on um, patients that present with blunt and penetrating neck trauma. Um, and we try, we, one of our authors is a military author, so we try to um, add some perspectives from both a civilian and a military perspective. Um, but, but all the authors uh, work in a major trauma centre that, that sees um, a reasonable amount, although I would say I, I, um, uh, it's not it's not the most common. Um, uh, it's not that common. If I'm honest. You, so you talked about trends of seeing more neck more neck trauma as time's gone on uh, over the last couple of years from the data that you have. Um, are there any potential reasons that you know why why we're seeing more incidences of neck injuries? Um, I think that's really um, uh, complex. So most of the data which I sort of signpost your listeners to comes from a uh, House of Commons briefing paper which uses a lot of police statistics um, and so that for example shows that um, it, it, it sort of to further answer your previous question of how common this is that in the year ending March 2019 there were 759 homicides um, involving a sharp instrument uh, and there were 4,757 what they classify as finished consultant episodes um, which are essentially patients being admitted to hospital um, with due to assault by a sharp object. Now, that's not necessarily uh, not necessarily the next. Y you're asking why it's increasing. I have to admit, I think that's probably like a PhD thesis in its own right. Certainly, interpersonal violence gets quite a lot of press uh, and quite a lot of discussion. Um, but I think what we also see, uh, um, I don't know about you, Anthony, but what I've seen a reasonable amount of in the last 12 to 24 months is um, a relatively high number of um, uh, penetrating neck trauma being inflicted, uh, being self-inflicted, often related to mental health illness. So I think there's lots of issues that, that feed into this. Um, but uh, sometimes I think that the, those that um, suffer from mental health problems don't uh, isn't something that we discuss. I completely agree with you, James. So I think it's difficult to sort of pinpoint a specific reason why, you know, crime may or may not have increased over the past few years. What I would say is we see a lot relatively more um, sort of penetrating traumas compared to, compared to blunt traumas. Um, and uh, as you point out, some of that is, uh, you know, related to altercations or gang violence. But probably 
probably an equal amount is self-inflicted with a background of mental health or or, or people in prisons. So so uh, I think it's difficult to pinpoint an exact reason why it's increased, but uh, clearly it has. Um, and you talked a lot about anatomical zones and regions, which I think can help you differentiate what kind of injuries you would expect if you were to see these patients from the end of the bed. Yeah, so Riaz, I mean, so historically, when we talked about you know penetrating neck trauma, people would would use that as a term to describe uh, an injury uh, that's started external to the skin and has penetrated the, the platysma muscle, which is the most superficial muscle layer uh, that sort of uh, binds the head, head and neck. Um, and and that's an important thing to consider because uh, historically, as soon as you had a platysmal injury. The sort of you know uh, gold standard management would be to have what we what we'd call a neck exploration, and and that that would encompass a whole range of things from people just looking at the wound and and sort of ferreting around and closing it to, to other people that would open the wound up, extending it uh, to explore below the platysma, in particular the carotid sheath and the neurovascular structures, and and that's really what you know what what was deemed penetrating, um, and sort of to try and classify that and more. More, more more clearly, uh, if you're not an ENT or head and neck surgeon, or you or you've not got a background in trauma, it's very difficult to describe locations on the neck. So if you're uh, an emergency uh, uh, paramedic or emergency physician or anaesthetist or surgeon, um, you know it's a whole range of skills that people have, but they may not be familiar with neck anatomy, uh, and really the zones have helped clarify that. So. Um, We've moved on from probably talking about zones uh, mandating certain types of management, but certainly uh, the zone classification is useful when we're taking referrals because it gives everyone a picture mentally of, of where the injury could be. So you know, we, we sort of cover it in the article, but but you know just briefly, so the zone one encompasses the uh, lower border of its clavicles and it extends up to the cricoid cartilage. And then uh, zone two is the cricoid to the lower border of the mandible, and zone three is the lower border, uh, so the, sorry, the um, angle of the mandible to to the skull base, and and they're sort of structures that generally everyone is familiar with, whether you whether you you know whether you're trained in uh, you know surgery or not, and and they're fairly easily accessible, uh, identifiable structures. So it just gives you a, a picture immediately as to what the injury could be, and it gives you a chance to think about you know the types of structures that will be involved. And, and more importantly, the type of procedures or, or other specialties you would need to manage the issues. Um, so if from, a, from a head and neck and ENT perspective, zone two injuries, that's in the sort of central uh, middle part between the cricoid and the lower border of the mandible, are possibly the most straightforward to deal with being an ENT head and neck surgeon. But for example, if I know that there's a, there's a zone one injury and it's, uh, you know, depending on the implement that's been used, if it's a long, sharp in, implement, it could quite easily have damaged the major you know, vessels around the carotid or subclavian artery or veins. And I know if I, as soon as I see a level one injury, zone one injury, that I'm probably going to need additional support. So it's unlikely that I'm going to be able to manage the entire vascular issue just from the neck alone. It, it's, it's likely that you're going to need some vascular or cardiothoracic support, uh, sometimes to even split the chest before you've, you've, even, you've even started anything. So that, that's why the zones are, zones are helpful. But we've sort of moved on to a more uh, progressive approach now, which is the sort of no zones approach, which which lots of people have written about, where instead of mandating, you know, zone twos need surgical exploration, zone ones need cardiothoracics and zone three needs interventional radiology type approach. It's more of a 
hard and soft signs approach. So if there's people that have got sort of impending airway uh, obstruction or major vascular compromise, we stratify them based on that rather than the zones per se. But the zones are a good sort of aid memoir to work out where the, where the level of injury could be. Can you make a fairly reasonable assessment from the end of the bed where this injury is? What I'm trying to get at is if I tell you it's a zone one injury, how sure how sure are you of my own assessment? Like, are people good at making these assessments? So if they're familiar with the zone classification, they're generally quite good at, at, at picking out when the zones are. Uh, everyone knows, obviously, zone two is going to be in the middle. Zone one and three, sometimes people will get confused. So if, if, if people are familiar with the zone classification, they're generally quite good. What What's important not to forget is, you know, it, depending on the implement that's used, if you've got a zone one, two or three entry site, it doesn't necessarily dictate where the deeper aspect of the injury could be. For example, if you've got a zone two entry site, it could still have a zone one injury in the in the vasculature more inferiorly, uh, and likewise if it's gone superiorly. So I think the most important thing from the end of the bed is whether you can assess the patient's airway and, and so an ABC approach, and also you know stressing you know in a penetrating neck trauma, it might be C the circulation that comes first. Given, given that might be the most likely cause of, of, of death in, in that type of situation. So from the end of the bed, I wouldn't, I would, it's helpful to know the zone classification. If you know it, it, it means everyone's on the same page. But if you can make the classification of, or the, the assessment of this is an airway that's, that's going to go off very quickly or it's relatively stable and is, is the patient uh, vascularly compromised, that would be the key thing that, that, that would be most useful for us, I think. You mentioned about airway assessment. So, James, what are the things that at the end of the bed, if I was the anaesthetic reg, do I need to have a checklist in my head that I've gone through and make sure that these things are either present or they're not present to to make sure that I've assessed that the airway is not acutely compromised? Yeah, sure. I think that's that's really, as the anaesthetist, one of the key elements of your assessment and we've we have um, listed these in a table in the article it's in table two but firstly before you're even starting to look at the patient you'll be thinking a bit about their mechanism of injury um, uh, and that will again depend on their blunt or penetrating injury um, but blunt injuries that can sometimes be um, a little bit less obvious because you don't have an obvious entry site would be things like a clothesline injury or strangulation you're automatically starting to think that that is associated with quite a high probability that they might have a compromised airway. And then in terms of red flag symptoms that should really concern you, it's things like stridor, dysphonia, dyspnea, any problems with swallowing, um, um, dysphagia or odynophagia. Uh, and then red flag examination findings as part of that kind of ATLS primary survey would be any evidence of respiratory distress, any bruising across the neck, uh, particularly any surgical emphysema across the neck, um, uh, tracheal deviation, although that's often a late sign and you should be very careful when examining, examining the trachea in someone if you've got a concern that they've got blunt airway injury because you can obviously exacerbate that. Um, hemoptysis uh, and any rapidly expanding neck hematoma would be some hard red flags that would prompt you to think that you need to quite rapidly uh, come up with a plan and execute a plan to secure that patient's airway. Anthony, from a um, clinical examination as a surgeon, can you tell by examining the depth of the wound when you look at someone with an object in their neck? Um, so that sort of depends on uh, how stable the patient is or not. And by stability, I'm talking about from the airway and and uh, and sort of uh, cardiovascularly. So so if the patient was stable, um, generally I wouldn't 
remove any penetrating object in the emergency department, you know, just to see how, how deep it had gone. So the clinical signs I'd be looking for is, is there a sort of major arterial bleeding from the neck? Is the neck, is there an expanding hematoma, just like sort of James mentioned? Is there air being sucked into the wound from anywhere? That might be a sign of, you know, a, a esophageal or um, thoracic injury. Uh, so those are things I'd be looking for. I'd be very cautious about removing anything penetrating below the plasma just in the, in, in the emergency department uh, for the reason that, you know, you, you might not be able to assess accurately how deep it's gone. And then you might set up a cascade of bleeding or airway obstruction that you can't control immediately. Um, so I think if a patient's stable, uh, certainly we've definitely moved towards imaging to try and get as much information before we do go to theatre. That changes in, in the unstable patient. So in, in the unstable patient, you know, you may have to you may have to to the operating room immediately uh, and 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 remove the foreign body. But uh, it's difficult to assess that, you know, just with the end from from the end of the bed, unless they've got other other signs that make you worried. Uh, and generally speaking, anything like that, if they're stable, we try and get some angiogram and then take them to theatre from there. If they're unstable, we're probably going to take them to theatre straight away. Uh, and and you're going to call, you know, you're going to have some. Depending on the on the on what what level it's at, you're probably going to have at least if you think it's a major vascular injury, you'll have some vascular support uh, and so on. So this brings us really nicely, um, James, to talk about the airway management. Um, and in the article, you've mentioned about how traditional DAS guidelines could be difficult, and those uh, airway algorithms could be difficult in this population um, of patients. Do you mind us just running running us through it? What the main uh, what the main considerations are when you're when you're doing airway management for these patients? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think one of the um, first things uh, to address is you mentioned, and we talk about in the article, that some of our, um, some of the difficult airway society guidance on managing the airway, both in, in theatre, but also in a patient that's critically ill, some components of that aren't um, necessarily applicable in this setting. And that's one of the, the reasons I really wanted to write this article was because um, some of the airway management principles slightly fly in the face of conventional training in airway management. For example, things like automatically applying positive pressure ventilation and trying to bag mass ventilate might not be appropriate in someone with a neck injury because you could exacerbate surgical emphysema through an air leak or you could dislodge a clot or something like that. Um, so that's sort of what I meant when we were saying that those guidelines aren't necessarily appropriate. Some of the principles still are, but some of the things um, uh, you just need to be cautious about. But broadly, when addressing the airway in a patient with a neck injury, you're going to be using the skills and knowledge you already have. We're going to try and establish whether this patient's got a patent airway or whether it's it's threatened uh, or, or going to rapidly obstruct. Uh, and we've got some red flags that I refer to in the article that would prompt you one way or another. Um, once you have made the decision you need to secure the airway, you really need a senior anaesthetist there, so someone that's experienced with, with kind of advanced airway techniques, an anaesthetic consultant or maybe an airway fellow. And ideally, you also want a, an experienced head and neck surgeon at the bedside. And that's probably one of the biggest logistical problems um, uh, uh, to mobilise earlier on, because um, you're going to come up with a management plan as a, as a multidisciplinary team. Um, and then broadly, the options both in blunt and penetrating neck trauma are to assess whether your patient is um, stable enough and cooperative enough to have a technique um, uh, uh, that can that, that is going to involve them being able to put up with something 
for um, maybe five to ten minutes. And so you could consider in those settings an awake fibre optic intubation, which is likely to be challenging, but does carry the benefits of maintaining airway tone, maintaining spontaneous ventilation and being able to. The important thing is being able to di directly visualise the airway all the way down to where you sight um, your endotracheal or endobronchial tube. So that if you do find an injury, you can make sure that your tube is sighted um, below the level of that injury. Um, or alternatively, uh, considering an awake surgical tracheostomy, which um, in the literature and in some centres is considered gold standard. Um, uh, but clearly, you need to have a patient that's going to be able to cooperate with that. Uh, in my experience, often um, due to one, sometimes the immediate availability of a head and neck surgeon, and two, often these patients are quite agitated and these techniques aren't necessarily appropriate. We talk about a kind of a, um, a, a very highly modified version of a rapid sequence induction that could be delivered potentially in the recess bay of an emergency department. And again, the key principles of the airway management is just to try and visualise everything before you go further down the airway. Um, <clears throat> so pre-oxygenate as best as possible, induce the uh, anaesthesia, particularly if you've got a hypovolemic using cardiostable agents, making sure that someone's addressing ongoing hemorrhage and resuscitation at the same time. You could use even uh, either direct or video laryngoscopy. Um, uh, they've both got advantages and disadvantages, which we talk a bit about in the article. So um, video laryngoscopy you probably need to use to do slightly less anatomical manipulation and probably need to use slightly less force to get a view of the glottis. But equally, that um, the camera at the end of your video laryngoscope can obstruct quite easily with blood and secretions. So some people might prefer a, um, a direct laryngoscopy in that setting. E either way, we just recommend using something that you're most competent and familiar with. Once you've then visualised the cords, what, what we're, we're um, sort of recommending you do and what's discussed in the literature is that you um, introduce a um, fibre optic scope with a preloaded, snugly fitting endotracheal tube. So that scope's like a size six, well lubricated tube. We also refer to something called a Parker tip tube, which might just reduce the chance of once you're sighting that tube of it snagging on maybe an airway tear or a uh, or a hematoma that might start restart bleeding and once you've introduced that scope you're then going to change to look at the screen for that scope and you're going to visualize all the way down to the carina to see if there's any injuries and then you'll sight the um you'll sight your tube uh, uh making sure that the cuff is below any injuries and ideally during that whole process you're going to try and avoid um, using positive pressure ventilation, be it bag mask ventilation, um, depending on how the patient tolerates that. Obviously, if they become hypoxic, then you'll need to do that. And you just we recommend you use the lowest possible pressure, positive pressure to achieve that. So um, those are the kind of uh, broad concepts and techniques that we talk about. And, and the kind of division point is really um, whether the patient's stable enough and cooperative enough to consider the kind of awake techniques or whether the patient you need in order you need, you need to get control sooner and therefore you're going to need to to go down the road of a kind of highly modified um rapid sequence um uh intubation and induction so anthony from from your perspective if that was attempted by an uh, by by the anesthetic team and they weren't able to secure the airway from their end so you've decided to abandon because you just haven't been able to intubate a patient what what would your next step be as a surgeon on that team so, so firstly, as, as James sort of mentioned or alluded to, we sort of would have a plan A, B and C. So so we've already had a discussion about, you know, what would, what the next steps would be. But it would depend on the the mechanism and the level of, of, of airway 
uh, obstruction and injury. So um, generally speaking, uh, cricothyroidotomy is what is what people would go to for for for, for a quick emergency surgical airway. But that that's not always uh, appropriate uh, because if you've got a tracheal injury or you know in the case of a blunt a blunt uh, neck injury you've got separation of the larynx and the trachea, uh, then a cricothyroidotomy might not actually uh, uh, be sufficient to, to you know, secure an airway. So you'd have to be considering a, uh, an, an awake tracheostomy. So, so in those situations, if, if I know that the, the trachea and the cricoid are not uh, displaced or there's, there's no suggestion of that, I would do uh, a cricothyroidotomy if from the anesthetic side, things were deteriorating very quickly because that's generally the quickest way into the airway. Uh, if I was concerned that the cricoid and the, the, the trachea, there, were, they, there was uh, an obstruction at that level, I'd want to go distal to that, so I'd, I'd perform an awake tracheostomy. Uh, and I, and I, just for my own um, preference, I, I often do a vertical incision for that because it allows me access to do a cricothyroidotomy or a tracheostomy depending on, on what uh, the case requires, and I'm doing it all through the same incision. So it gives me a lot more flexibility, particularly if you have to do something very quickly. So that, that's, that's the approach that I adopt. Um, obviously, the ease at which you can get into the front of the neck for a tracheal or cricothotomy is, is often also dependent on the degree of injury and the soft tissues anterior to the trachea. So if there's a massive, you know, if there's a massive hematoma there, that's going to make it much more difficult for us. Um, and that's why trying to preempt these these things before you get to it is is useful. So we prefer to deal with impending airway obstruction rather than airway obstruction that's already developed and is then suddenly you know catastrophic. So so generally that's that that would be our approach. Um, we've sort of touched on high flow nasal oxygen. We do use that a lot for for our local anaesthetic tracheostomies from the head and neck side. Uh, but these are patients that haven't had mid face trauma or trauma in the oral cavity or oropharynx and bleeding in the pharynx area. So obviously you've got to use high flow nasal oxygen appropriately and, and with people that are comfortable using it and in the right patient. So in someone who's not got a lot of blood in the airway, um, certainly we find that very useful, but that, that depends on the me- mechanism of injury really. And James, from your, your from your perspective, if you had to if you had to oxygenate while Anthony's trying to do the front of neck access, how would you recommend oxygenating? Yeah, so I'm really glad Anthony mentioned high flow nasal oxygen. I have to admit, I think if you've managed to get up to theatre and there isn't a contraindication to it, then at lower flows, that could be something you could consider is it's often better tolerated, it's humidified, it's warmed, and so the patients um, uh, can get on with it better. However, there are significant risks of it, which we sort of discussed in the article, particularly at higher flow rates, where there is some evidence in, in, in healthy volunteers that there does generate some airway pressure. Uh, and therefore might um, exacerbate problems with bleeding and problems with um, um, surgical emphysema. So um, uh, in summary, if, if we were securing the airway in the emergency department, I just don't think it's really feasible. The time frame of getting all the kit there to do high flow nasal oxygen, I would just pre-oxygenate with a, um, with a water circuit probably down there. It's probably the thing that's most immediately available um, and but not putting any peep on it. And then but if we're in theatre, depending, I would either use that or um, I would consider setting up high flow nasal oxygen if there's time and if there wasn't an obvious contraindication. So how would this, the management plans that you've set out, how would this contrast if somebody had a, a penetrating wound to their neck? How would you change, James, from an, from an anaesthetic point of view? What would be different for yeah. you? So the, there's a few things to factor there. So kind of going through the ATLS 
A to E from an airway perspective. The only thing, um, only different strategy that I haven't already mentioned is so they've got a big open tracheal wound and you can obviously see posterior tracheal wounds. You can actually site your uh, endotracheal tube through that. We'd recommend doing that under direct visualisation with a uh, with a with a tube mounted on a fibre optic scope. Um, but otherwise, the principles are similar to the ones that I've um, outlined for blunt trauma. Again, what Anthony says really key is that this is not a plan you're making in isolation. It's a multidisciplinary plan. And, and what we recommend doing is is writing out ideally on a whiteboard what plan A is and plan B is. So everyone's got that shared mental model of what happens, particularly if you're not successful with whatever your first plan is. And then the only other thing to really be cognizant of with a uh, penetrating injuries, you're far more likely to have problems with um, profound hypovolemic shock and ongoing bleeding. And that really needs um, a separate member of the trauma or resuscitation team that isn't going to get task fixated on airway management, that can focus on all the things that are necessary to deliver, if needs be, a major transfusion protocol through wide bore access. Uh, if you've got it in your centre using uh, a rapid infuser, um, keeping in, keeping on top of things like acid base status, calcium, etc. So that's the only thing, other additional thing that I think you need to think about. Um, and I think Anthony has already pointed out that the trajectory of these wounds can be really important because that could signify some of the underlying structures that might also be damaged. Uh, so, for example, uh, if we go back to the zones of injury, like a zone three injury, you might have a concaminant brain injury. Uh, or in a zone one injury, you could well have uh, an intrathoracic injury and you might need to be making sure that the, a member of the trauma team is performing an appropriate primary survey to rule out life-threatening chest trauma. And what about your, from your perspective, Anthony, if the patient has a penetrating wound? So if someone's got a penetrating neck wound and, and an open airway, I, I would go straight for that as the, as the entry site to where, where you're going to site your tube, as, as James said. So it's not infrequent that I've seen anterior neck injuries in zone two and you see you can see the epiglottis through the front of the neck. And in that situation, the easiest thing to do is put a tube in directly through the neck, whether you use a fiber optic scope or you've got a really good view and you can start the tube straight down. If you're happy that that's the only level of the airway injury, then that that's something that we shouldn't forget. So sometimes we fixate on trying to do a cricothyrotomy or, or intubate through the mouth. But actually, if you can see the airways already open and through the front of the neck, that is your front of neck access, in, in, in my opinion. In your article, you talk about a Foley catheter and achieving homeostasis with a with a Foley catheter. Um, yeah, so that actually, that that comes from um, this um, large case series from South Africa, and uh, they report really good, well, you know, fairly good vascular control by putting a Foley in in through the neck and and tamponading bleeding that way. I've never uh, used that uh, technique. But but they you know they get a lot more penetrating neck trauma than we do and uh, they've 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 you know used that technique with good effects so it's something to consider um, but I think generally the, the cases that I've seen in the UK where they've come in with with major bleeding they've come in with the paramedics with a bandage and and, and and digital pressure on the wound I've never seen anyone use a Foley catheter but it but it's, it's reported to be effective James have you have you come across that technique as well um, yeah I've actually seen it done once I think it's probably less commonly used or needed in a major trauma center because of the luxury of having so many things immediately available like a, a on-call head and neck surgeon like a major trauma team and the availability of an operating theater almost instantaneously the one time I saw it used was in a district general hospital when we had a patient that was that was quite unstable with a penetrating neck injury and we were struggling to get control and um 
uh, it was done, I think, by one of the general surgeons while we were waiting for a head and neck surgeon to come across from the major trauma center to come and do a neck exploration. And um, uh, it worked well in conjunction with some other measures as a temporizing uh, measure to get control of that bleeding until we had uh, the surgical expertise on site to be able to, to be able to deal with it. And practically, James, it's just inserting a catheter from an obvious bleeding site and then inflating it like you would if you were to put it, I guess, as a urinary catheter. Um, yeah, so you need to run it along the wound track. This is from descriptions I've done it since I've only seen it done once and I've, I've read about it. And uh, you need to slowly inflate it because obviously there's a risk if you do it quite rapidly, you could you could stretch or damage structures. And then you the, the key is you need to clamp the catheter because obviously you could just have ongoing bleeding through that, that urinary catheter. And then some of the surgical literature talks, talks about stitching it in. Um, that's not something that's within my skill set um but um i you know i signpost readers to go on and read about that if they want from a practical perspective if um in terms of obviously the patients that go for uh, exploration and they will probably go on to go to itu for the patients that you decide to manage conservatively um I suspect in your hospital, most of these patients should go to ITU. I think it sort of depends on your institution. So obviously, with this being a major trauma centre, I think you can sort of assess the severity or the likelihood of there being, you know, a developing airway or or vascular problem. Um, So I think once the patient's had a CT angiogram, the patient has reasonable neck injuries below the platysma. They might have a CT angiogram. The CT angiogram sometimes is, is, is useful to, to, for two things. It might allow you to perform a more selective neck exploration, i.e. manage some patients conservatively, but it can also allow you to perform a sort of more delayed neck exploration, i.e. not straight from the oper- from ED to the operating room. You might be able to do it in four to six hours time when you've got you know, the day team of command or you've got you know the appropriate uh, trained people around. So that's that's one of the that's one of the of the advents uh, of the, so the advantages of of, of the of the imaging that we have, but I think if we're happy that the patient's airway is is going to be stable, many of our patients once they've been uh, addressed will go to our either trauma ward or ENT ward where we have airway beds. But that's a luxury that you don't always get in lots of other hospitals. So I think depending on where you work, it might be appropriate to go to an IT or HDU setting where you've got people that can manage the airway. I think if we thought there was a high chance that the airway would go off. We'll be managing that preemptively rather than setting into a ward setting. So that's something to think about as well. So just to um, just to bring this to an end, I like to think that hopefully all of these patients will come to a major trauma centre where there's teams like yourselves who could take care of these patients. But I suspect every now and then these patients will come to a district hospital. Um, so from both of your perspective, um, starting with you, Anthony, what would be your key message if this patient came to a district general hospital of the things that you must do and the things we must think about? So an ATLS approach where you're thinking about the circulation and the airway at the same time, I think it's a, it's, it's about knowing what can go off quickly and, and trying to preempt that. So if you've got a completely stable patient, yes, this is the type of patient to send for a CT angio. If you've got someone that isn't stable from the airway or, or vascular side, then you've got to think about an airway early on. And depending on the mechanism of injury, that's going to decide, you know, you most likely approach for that. And uh, and the and the same for the blood loss. So have you got have you got a patient that is stable and can go for a scan, or are they going to need immediate management? And then I think if you can stabilise a patient, is it can they be managed locally, or should the patient be transferred? Obviously, if a patient's not stable, you're not going to be transferring them anywhere. So, so the take-home message would be really effective initial assessment of the of the injury. 
Uh, and same question to you, James. What would be your words of wisdom um, for, from the, for the athletic side? I don't know about wisdom, um, but maybe some uh, just some pointers. I agree with Anthony. You know, stick to your core principles. There needs to be a senior anaesthetist present at the bedside that's ideally ATLS trained. You need to complete an ATLS primary survey so other life-threatening injuries aren't missed. Uh, and your airway, your principles of airway management in terms of having a low threshold for securing an airway that you think might have ongoing uh, ongoing compromise or be at risk of compromise. And then once you have, uh, have completed that, thinking about the skill set that you need. So this one example I have from when I was a more junior trainee in a district general hospital, it was clear that we weren't going to be able to stabilise or get the patient to, into a safe clinical condition to to transfer to a major trauma centre. So maybe it's more appropriate sometimes to bring the skills to you and that's just something to think about and uh, something to discuss um, with the, the specialist skills that you have within your trauma networks. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, both of you. Thank you, Riyadh, for, for inviting us to speak. It's, uh, it's a really interesting topic. Yeah, thanks so much, Riyadh. Um, thank you for inviting us.